Well, we're going to stay in the Psalms today, and our setting out here at the beach makes this message very, very easy to deliver. We're also going to keep it shorter than usual because I know it's hard to concentrate in this type of setting. So my goal this morning is simply to stir your hearts to remember who God is as our Creator and our Sovereign as we sit out here in the beauty of His creation. And it's my hope and prayer that that drives you, that truth drives you, to greater worship and praise. So if you have your Bible or you brought it on your phone, I want you to open to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. So far in this brand new series in the Psalms, we have opened the gateway to the entire book by closely looking at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And already we've seen some key themes. In Psalm 1, we saw these these two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and what marks both of those paths and where those two ways lead to in the end. And then in Psalm 2, we saw the rebellion of mankind against God, and we saw God's answer to that rebellion, His King, who He calls His Son, whom He will establish on His holy mountain. And then we saw God warn the nations, worship the Son, kiss the Son, or else you will perish in His wrath. Now, my plan moving forward in the Psalms is just to work our way through the first of the five collections that make up the entire book. And the first book, of course, is Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. And today's passage happens to fall within that first collection. But more importantly, it also happens to be the perfect text for our setting here at the beach. So let's look at this passage. Now, interestingly, there are only four Psalms in this first book that do not have a title or superscription. We've already looked at two of them. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 don't have a title. And this one, Psalm 33, also comes without a title or caption. Now we're going to read just verses 1 through 12. And as we do, I want you to consider the condition of your hearts this morning. Where are you in your walk with the Lord right now? Where are you with Him? Is your heart full of joy right now? Is it full of praise for Him? And finally, do you truly believe that He is sovereign not only over creation and the nations in the world, but also sovereign over your life? All right, let's dig into the text. Verse 1, Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright, or praise from the upright is beautiful. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Verse 3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now notice the psalmist begins with an imperative here, a command. He says, sing praises, give thanks, play and sing with joy. Notice also that he doesn't just direct it to anybody, but because let's be honest, not every human being is welcome to come before the throne of God and to praise his name. Look at the language in verse 1. This command is addressed to those who are righteous and upright. Now in Psalm 24, David, speaking of ascending to the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, gives us more of a definition of what it means to come into the presence of the Lord. He says, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. And friends, that is true whether you are in Jerusalem or you are on the beach in Ventura, California. 
The requirement to come into the presence of the Lord now is righteousness, uprightness, clean hands, a pure heart, and approaching Him in truth, meaning you come before Him not holding anything back, not faking it. There's nothing false going on as you come into His presence. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, hold on. Is that really me? Does that describe me? Am I all of those things? Well, I would start with this question. Do you know the Lord? That's the first and most important question. Do you know Him? Are you found in Him this morning? Because if so, your sins are covered by the blood of His Son. And yes, you have full access to His throne of grace. But if not, then your sin remains. If not, it means you are in rebellion to His rule right now. And therefore, you have no right or ability to approach Him and praise Him. And then the questions that follow are important as well. If you do know Him, have you submitted to His Lordship over your life? Do you need to repent of sin this morning? In spite of your imperfections and stumblings, and we all have them, is it a true condition of your heart to please God and to make your life a living sacrifice to His glory? If so, then come and sing for joy. That's what, listen, that's what God's people do when they're gathered together in His name. They sing with cheerful hearts. They sing with real joy, even if life is hard at this moment, because we know Him. And more importantly, we're known by Him, and that means that our sins have been washed away, the price of our ransom paid in full. Does that not resonate in your heart? Does it not want to just cause you to shout praises to the Lord? Because that's the phrase at the end of verse 3. Look at it. It says, shout with joy. Now, you may say to yourself, Jeff, that's, that's not how I do it. I'm, I'm a more reserved type of person. I'll, I'll keep it measured and worship quietly. Really? In his day, Charles Spurgeon, who you know, had to preach to British congregants known for their stiff upper lip, British congregants known for their reserved ways, he chided even his congregation. This is what he said in a sermon. He said, Hardiness should be conspicuous in divine worship. Well-bred whispers are disreputable. Did you catch the contrast? Hardiness should be obvious when we come to worship. But this idea of having well-bred whispers, you know, holding ourselves back, he says that's disreputable. Then he goes on to say this, Men shout at the sight of their kings. Shall we not offer even more to the son of David? I think he has a good point there. And the psalmist tells us in verse 1 that that type of worship where joy just spills out of us into enthusiastic praises, he says, it's beautiful in the sight of God. Listen to that. When we as His people come together with clean hearts and, and, or clean hands and a heart to please Him, He calls it becoming. He calls it beautiful. And that is happening even this morning. So sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. And then we see the psalmist describe what we've already heard this morning from Gabe. Thank you, Gabe. Praises lifted up to the Lord of creation with musical instruments, strings even. Way to go, Gabe. Brought his guitar with him and everything. And it says they should be played skillfully in verse 3. That means played with excellence and enthusiasm to the glory of God because He deserves our best. And when we bring that to Him, God is pleased. And then look at the command at the beginning of verse 3. Sing to Him a new song. Now, what does that mean? I'll admit that uh, every time in the past I had seen that phrase in Scripture, it made me scratch my head and bug me a little bit. Like, what does that mean 
to sing a new song. You see it, you see this phrase in the Psalms, but you also see it several times in the book of Revelation. What does it mean to sing a new song? Does that mean that, man, the church just keep, has to keep writing new material all the time because we can't sing old songs? No, that's, that's really not the point here. This goes beyond writing new songs. It actually applies to the hearts of every person that comes into the presence of God to worship. What it means at its core is that every praise song that we sing, even if it's an old song that we've sung a hundred times, it should emerge from our hearts out of a fresh awareness of what God has done for us in the past and what He's doing right now in our lives. Because the reality is the Christian's walk is never static, right? So even today, as we, as we sing familiar songs, I want you to think to yourself as you sing, how does this song come from my heart and from my lips in light of where I'm at with the Lord? Because that's what it means to sing to Him a new song. Now, in the nine verses that remain, the psalmist wants to give you and I reasons, reasons to praise God with great joy. There's three things we see here in particular. First of all, verses 4 and 5, the first reason we should praise God is because of His character, because of His perfect character. Look at verse 4. It says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness, or all His work is trustworthy. Now, take note of those two important things, the word and the work of the Lord. We'll come back to that in just a second. Verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Some translations say the earth is full of his steadfast love. So what produces worship in the hearts of God's people? What causes us to grow in our trust of him, to grow in our love for him? The answer in verse 4 is his word and his work. His word, the text, write, the text says, is upright. That's the same word we saw in verse 1, yashar in the original Hebrew, and it refers to something that is straight and correct. So the word of the Lord is straight, it is correct, it is true. There's no deception in it. It's fully trustworthy as God's revelation to us. It's sufficient as a guide for all of our faith and practice. As we read in Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago, the man or woman who is connected to the Word of God is like a tree that is firmly planted by a stream, being fed by this constant supply of life-giving water. That's what we want to be as believers. And then God's work is done with that same impeccable integrity. All of the works He has promised, He faithfully accomplishes out of love and care for those who belong to Him. And verse 5 explains it further. He loves righteousness and justice. So catch this now. The Lord delivers and He judges. He rewards and He punishes. He gives life and He imposes death. He raises up and He tears down. And in all of it, whatever He does in His works, it's always righteous, it's always just. Because all of those things are an expression of His infinite knowledge, His infinite goodness, and His infinite wisdom. And in fact, the psalmist says here, if you pay attention, if you have spiritual eyes to see, you will look around and see that the earth is full of his steadfast love. In other words, there's not a spot on the earth where you will not see the traces of his gracious hand at work. And look around. We see it all around us this morning in creation. Three times in this psalm, we're told about God's steadfast love. And what an anchor this is for us. See, here's the thing, you guys. Friends are going to fail us. 
and economies are going to turn and our health might decline, but God's love is never failing. We can count on it. And even if everything in life goes south, even if people we trust turn against us, the psalmist assures us that God never will. And so listen, that's the basis of our worship, friends. That's why, because he's trustworthy, because he always fulfills his promises. God has spoken to us, God has acted for us, and he has made himself known as righteous and just and full of loving kindness. And now, now that you know that, the psalmist wants to say, then sing for joy. Maybe even think about shouting and give thanks from your heart. So that's number one. We worship and praise God because of his perfect character. But it goes beyond that. Number two, we worship him because of his unlimited power. Look at verse six, his unlimited power. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host, meaning all the things that are in the heavens. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast or it came into existence. Now, look at those four verses. This is that special moment where we are so blessed to be outside here on the beach in creation. So look, look around right now. Look up for a second. See how vast the expanse of the sky is. It's, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Sometimes we take everything for granted, but we never actually look around and consider this creation that we live in. And when you look up at the sky, what you see is only a fraction of what's actually above you. What you see right now is called the troposphere. It's about seven and a half miles up, and that's the place where weather forms and where we fly in planes. But above that layer, there's, uh, that layer, there is so much more. Next, there's a stratosphere about 31 miles above us. That's where the ozone layer exists to protect us from the radiation of the sun. And boy, that's convenient, isn't it? That God saw fit to give us this layer up there that protects us from burning up because the radiation of the sun is so powerful. We're thankful for that, right? Above that is called the mesosphere, up to 50 miles above us, where, get this, it's minus 120 degrees. And where shooting stars blaze and, and space debris burns up. But then going even higher, there's this thing called the thermosphere, as high as 440 miles above us, where charged particles affect the Earth's magnetic field. And finally, above all that, is called the exosphere, that's up to 6,200 miles above us right now, where the air dwindles to nothing and molecules drift off into space. And you guys, listen, that's just the Earth's atmosphere. There is so much more beyond that. Beyond that is this immeasurable thing we call outer space that is filled with planets and galaxies and moons and stars and asteroid belts and comets and black holes some of which are billions of light years away from where we are sitting this morning. Man, God made it all. And it's so big and it's so, so overwhelming, isn't it? And I don't think we've even seen everything that there is to discover. Because for those with eyes to see that are paying attention, God is routinely astonishing mankind with his power. And this is the psalmist's point. If you look around, you will fear the Lord and you will praise his name. 
David declares this in Psalm 8. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and then he asks this amazing question, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? How small we are, right? That's David's point. How small we are, and yet, in God's eyes, so valuable. So valuable. So guys, listen, that's above you. But have you ever considered what's below your feet? Have you ever thought about what you're sitting on right now? What you and I see below our feet right now is called the Earth's crust. And all it is is like a shell of an egg. Extremely thin and cold compared to what's in the deep. The Earth's crust is only 1% of the Earth's entire mass. And yet, get this, it contains all known life in the universe. Now, below the crust is a layer called the Earth's mantle. It starts about 25 miles down, and it goes down to 1,800 miles deep, making it 84% of the Earth's mass. And here's the scary thing. With all the technology we have, man has never even been able to get to the mantle. The deepest we've ever drilled into the Earth is about seven and a half miles down, only about a third of the way through the Earth's crust. And doing that drilling took us 20 years. Right? So man is so prideful and arrogant, yet we can't even get down to the Earth's mantle. Inside the mantle, then, is the outer core, 3,200 miles down. And finally, we believe there is this dense inner core of the Earth, 4,000 miles down. And get this, the temperature down there, we believe, is 9,800 degrees, almost as hot as the surface of the sun. And with a pressure three million times greater than where we're sitting this morning. God made the heavens and the earth, and it is overwhelming how powerful He must be to make such things. Now, look out here. Look to the west. Look out at the ocean. All the way to the horizon. How big and scary is that? Oceans make up 70% of our planet, and yet they're so vast and so deep that we still haven't explored them completely. That ocean you see right now, the Pacific Ocean, is 60 million square miles large, larger than the landmass of all the continents combined. The Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the oceans near the coast of Japan, 36,000 feet down, it is deeper than Mount Everest is tall. You could stack 28 Empire State Buildings and you wouldn't reach the bottom of that portion of the sea. So Christian, listen, consider the heavens, consider the depths of the earth, consider the vastness of the seas. Do you understand just a little bit about how powerful our God is? Amazing. Now let's try a little experiment. Turn to somebody near you and just say the phrase, let it be. Ready, go. Just say, let it be. Okay. How hard was that? Pretty simple, right? Wasn't hard at all. That's about as hard as it was for God to make all the things we just talked about and to do it from nothing. He creates all of this, the heavens, the earth, the seas, ex nihilo, from nothing. And he didn't have to struggle to do it. He didn't have to strain. The psalmist says it right here. He spoke and it was done. Imagine the immensity of that power. He commanded, and it came into existence. And listen, that's not even the most mind-boggling thing. That's, that's wild, isn't it? 
But get this, not only did he create all of this from nothing, he created it precisely and perfectly ordered, every inch of it, to sustain life. With precision and order, so that we could be here this morning. He sustains all of it. That's happening right now as we speak. Hebrews 1 says that God the Son sustains all things in the universe simply by the power of His Word. So the manifestation of God's power right now is before you this morning. Friends, that's the kind of God who deserves our worship, who deserves our praise and a healthy sense of awe. And that's what the psalmist says in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. That is an understatement. So be humbled by His power and His majesty, His word and His works. Also, the one who made all things, get this now, He made all things, He sustains all things. In a moment, He could also destroy all things. And so, yes, He's worthy of a healthy respect and awe from every creature in His created order. So the psalmist has prayed, praised God for his moral perfection and for his creative power. Finally, number three, he praises God for his active guiding hand through human history. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. Man, this, this, this puts a smile on my face because listen, proud men and women, they think they're steering the course of history. Presidents and prime ministers and celebrities and athletes and entrepreneurs and influencers. They gather together. They hold meetings and conferences. They formulate plans and strategies. And then they rage against any suggestion that God might get in their way, that they're not running things. They convince themselves that they're the ones who are omnipotent and in control of their destinies. But as we read in last Sunday's psalm, when they do that, God sits in heaven and he laughs. He scoffs at the rebellion of beings who are contingent upon his grace for every breath that they take, and yet they shake their fist at him. And so according to his will, the psalmist says here, he frustrates and he overrides their plans. And what we learn in scripture is that all human plans and all human strategies are always subject to either divine approval or divine restraint. And in the end, the only will that prevails is God's will. And by the way, we have the most obvious example of this at the cross, right? This moment in history where, where arrogant men, you know, a Roman governor and arrogant men, these religious leaders plotted and conspired to crucify the Lord of glory. And yet in doing so, they inadvertently carried out God's eternal plan of redemption. So he did what this verse says. God nullified their plans and established his. Once again, Spurgeon spoke of this when, in one of his sermons. In talking about how the people you know, shake their fist to God, he said, This world's persecutions, this world's slanders and falsehoods are like puffballs flung against a granite wall. They produce no result at all. For the Lord overrules the evil and brings good out of it. Listen to this. The cause of God is never in danger. Amen. Verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So we see that God's unchanging decree over history cannot be thwarted. His purpose will always stand, no matter how the nations and the people rage and object to him. 
And you have to understand that God's sovereignty over creation and in human history are intimately related. Listen, God rules this world because it belongs to Him, because He made it. So God can part the waters of the sea because they're His waters. And He can shake the earth's foundations because the earth is His. And He can display wonders in the heavens because they belong to Him. They're all under His control. See, it would be hard to believe that God rules a world that He didn't make or that He controls a world that's not His. And that's why so many in our culture are determined to deny that God even exists. They don't want there to be a God capable of creating the universe because that type of God would rule it too. And that means He would have dominion over their lives and they would not be in control. So, the world, they're not seeking truth. Their heart's desire is to be free from God's rule. That's what we read in Psalm 2 last Sunday, where it said the kings and the nations take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed, Jesus, saying, let us tear off their chains and throw off their ropes. They deny God because they don't want Him to exist. But He does. And He's sovereign over all. And I think it's important for us to note that God's decree is not just Uh, He's just not sovereign over the big things of history. He's also sovereign over the details of your life and mine. We trust that this morally perfect, all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth and the oceans is also guiding the circumstances of our lives, that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him according to His purpose. And that starts with with the way He has saved us. In fact, we see Paul. Paul makes a connection between creation and salvation in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, God, who said, "Let let light shine out of the darkness, that's creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory. So catch that now. Just as He spoke the sun into existence in the beginning, He also spoke light into our sinful hearts. And He saved us. That is a personal God who is mindful of each man and each woman. No matter how small we seem compared to the universe around us, God is that imminent in our lives. And that is good news for those of us who worship and praise Him. And finally, let verse 12 just be the capstone to all this. Verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen, For his own inheritance. So God's favor is upon the nation that has Yahweh as their Elohim, the one to whom nothing in creation can compare, upright and faithful and righteous and just and steadfast and powerful and purposeful and personal. And God's favor rests upon his elect, those whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Are you grateful for that this morning? Amen. Well, let's sing our praises and let's first of all pray to that God who loves us in this way and then we will sing His praises even more this morning.